0: It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. The nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. You know, we talk a lot about the, on this show the mechanics of fundraising, of leadership, of how to run a nonprofit organization. One of the things that we don't talk a lot about, but perhaps it's implicit in what we talk about, but it's those less quantifiable ingredients, if you will, of a nonprofit. And the one specifically today is the topic of hope. Now, some of you are EDs or CEOs of your nonprofit, some of you are donors, some of you are board members, some of you are just volunteers, which is wonderful. And I wonder, when you think about the nonprofit that you love and that you're a part of, is hope a critical component of what you do, providing hope for those you serve? Now, ironically, the organization that I lead, uh, it's actually in our mission statement, providing hope that those we serve is part of our mission The guest today is going to talk about how his approach and his organization's approach is all about giving hope to people, that they work through microfinance and they work through savings programs and they do some very tangible things, of course, that do show up on a chart, that do show up on a graph. But at the end of the day, they want to provide hope. They want to give people hope that their lives can be better. And they deal with people in extreme poverty throughout the world. Our guest today is Peter Greer. He is the president and CEO of Hope International. Well-named, right? Uh, it's a global faith-based microenterprise development organization serving throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show and perhaps even walk away with a renewed sense of the power of hope. Well, my guest today is Peter Greer. He's the president and CEO of Hope International. He's calling in from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Peter, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: I've been looking forward to it. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, this is a really, really interesting organization, and I thought it'd just be good for you to start out by telling us how you started your nonprofit, and maybe you weren't the one that started it, but how did the nonprofit in general start? As I understand, I've read on your website that it started with a focus towards the Ukraine. Maybe talk about the origin of Hope International.
1: Yeah, it's always interesting to hear kind of the founding story, because it really does shape an organization's identity and purpose and and practices. And uh, you're exactly right. It was after the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s that there was a time of incredible need in the former Soviet Union. And there was a church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania that uh, read the scripture and said, we've got we've to do something. We've got to do something to show up and love our global neighbors. And so they packed their suitcases and they went on trips and they built buildings and they built churches and they gave generously. And on one of these trips, as the situation in Ukraine uh, stabilized, uh, the pastor in the town that they were serving, Pastor Petrenko, uh, told the team, he said, your help isn't helping us anymore. And it was so interesting because what he recognized is that what was good and appropriate in a time of crisis was no longer good or appropriate as as a way of helping uh, his church and his community. And as they uh, listened, as they thought about is there a better way of helping, what they realized is that individuals in this community, they wanted to work. They wanted to provide. They didn't want to be someone else's charity case. And this church did not want to grow into a position of unhealthy dependency on, on an external church even if that external church had really good motivations and intentions. And so it really was out of that that they changed the conversation about what does it look like for us to love and serve long-term. And uh, after a couple uh, other tries, they realized that, that, uh, as Dr. John Perkins says, that the world's best anti-poverty program is a job, uh, and so they really shifted the approach, and Hope International was born out of that shift with a desire to provide employment and to provide ways of helping individuals help themselves. Um, and to do it all within the the love uh, of, of of Jesus, and to do this uh, in such a way that it really was helping people help themselves.
0: What's interesting that you know, for a nonprofit to shift gears like that, to be successful on the one hand, but have to shift gears a bit in terms of their focus in order to really be effective. A lot of nonprofits can't make that shift. Um, and as you did that, you did become what it's very clear you became more holistic in your approach. So. As your website states, and as I've read a little bit more about your organization, you seek to provide a holistic approach to helping those in poverty. And you've done it in three primary ways. It's through financial, educational, and spiritual um, help. So talk a little bit about your primary mission, and how do you balance your approach to keep your mission clear?
1: Yeah, so... I mean, it's impossible to keep your mission clear if you have a cloudy mission. So I love your I love your question even, and and it is predicated upon having a clear definition of what your mission is. And uh, for us, uh, it, it is to invest in the dreams of families. Uh, in the world's underserved communities as we cro- proclaim and live the gospel. So a couple things in that. One is that we want to invest in families. Uh, we do not want to go in and define them uh, by what they don't have, but we want to go in with eyes to see their capacity. We want to start with with a position of listening. Uh, what are the gifts and abilities and dreams that they have? And so really, uh, I believe it's impossible to love someone if you don't uh, spend time listening to them. So really a desire to, to start with a posture of investing in them, getting to know them, and listening to them. It all begins with do we have clarity around our mission, and then do we have intentionality of our practices to make sure that the decisions we make are helping us accomplish our mission and are not just good things to do, but really hitting the core of who we are and what we're about.
0: I think you nailed it in the sense of a clarity on one's mission is so critical and it's so easy to have mission drift, whatever your focus is in your nonprofit. So I can tell that you've really kind of worked through that. And it's something though you realize, I realize we always have to constantly be watching that and monitoring that, particularly in the CEO role or executive director role to make sure there's not mission drift because that can happen very subtly sometimes and it becomes a, a big shift over time. Well, you have two primary approaches to helping people financially. Um, You have a savings group program and then a microfinance institutional approach. Um, Talk about, first of all, the savings group program. It was interesting as I read more information about that. How exactly does this work?
1: Yeah, and it might sound a little bit counterintuitive that uh, this is an approach uh, to uh, work uh, in places of extreme poverty and, and to start by savings. And, you know, maybe some of your listeners are having the same response that I had when I first heard about this. Uh, It seems like an impossibility. You're saying you work in places of extreme poverty and you start by asking people to save? That doesn't even seem possible. Isn't the definition of poverty meaning there's not a lot? But what we found is that even if it is really small amounts of money that people are saving together, there is something powerful that is accomplished. This idea of saving and shifting the mindset from just thinking about today to saving and making a bold declaration that there's something worth saving for, this future orientation. And then also, as these groups gather together, uh, for us, they are based in the local church, uh, reaching out to the community, serving all individuals, but based uh, within a local church, As we uh, gather these uh, individuals, as they come together um, and as they start saving, they go through a really simple methodology uh, to begin to um, think about what are the businesses that they would want to launch. What are the gifts uh, that they have that if they just had a little bit more capital that they could uh, grow and expand? And and so that uh, simple model and methodology allows a group of people to come together. They start saving together, and then they pool their savings, and they start investing it in each other. And this is not just around the world where we see the savings group model and approach. Uh, this happens in the U.S., and it's a really powerful way to have a group of people come together and, and the positive benefits of cheering for each other, rooting each other on, and then also having a capital uh, base that can start to be used to invest in each other's businesses. So maybe just a real quick example of what that looks like. I was in Rwanda uh, where my wife and I, we started our marriage there, and and um, uh, this was five years after the genocide uh, of 1994 that, that I moved there and um, met a group of individuals, and they at that time started saving uh, 10 cents. There were 23 women that gathered together and at the beginning they each saved 10 cents a week so what that meant is that there was $2.30. might not sound like a whole lot, but every week as, as they gathered, they would have this $2.30, and then in a rotating fashion, they would give that lump sum to one of the individuals of the group, and then that $2.30 could be used. One individual uh, bought uh, charcoal, uh, and then at a really small level started to sell it in her community, and another person... Um, did that uh but then saved up with a little more and got a chicken and and you start to have this really small amount but fast forward a couple years they continued to meet together they continued to help each other in their businesses they continued to dream dreams together and they continue to 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 grow and 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 pray and sing and worship together and they had been doing that for a period uh now of almost 20 years and while i was with this same group um i got to see that they had invested in some businesses together they had these group uh grinding mills uh, they had bought a truck to help with their transportation they had built the local church and uh it it if you had told me that this would be the outcome uh you know 20 years ago of people saving 10 cents a week i just i would not have believed it but there's something powerful about groups of people coming together praying together, and then also investing together in in some small-scale business ideas that over a period of time don't stay small uh, too much longer.
0: Well, that's very helpful to describe that. Now, you also have the microfinance institutional approach with the people that you serve. Um, talk about that a little bit. How does it compare and contrast with the savings group program approach?
1: Yes, yeah, so the microfinance institutions uh, are probably most well-known from uh, the work of Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank, and um, and uh, he won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, a number of years ago uh, for his pioneering work in the sector. But really this is about uh, providing investment capital into small-scale entrepreneurs and uh, oftentimes not requiring any form of a physical collateral. So it also, just like we were talking about with the savings group, it's a group-based approach where it provides individual loans but within a group context where that group agrees that if one of the members doesn't repay his or her loan, that the group will step in and repay that payment for that individual. And so it's a high degree of accountability and empowerment at the local level to make sure that individuals are are having these groups, they're they're managing them well, and uh, there's this incentive to make sure that everyone doesn't just receive a loan, but make sure that it's the right amount of capital, it's the right amount of of investment in that specific entrepreneur. And so, in a regulatory sense, they oftentimes are uh, registered as banks or financial institutions of some sort. Uh, The way that they work is oftentimes this group-based lending methodology that allows uncollateralized loans to be given in places of extreme poverty and to have a really high repayment rate. Uh, For us, over the last five years, uh, it's been uh, over 98% of all the loans that we've given within this microfinance institution context have been repaid. So it really does change, perhaps for some. The, the way that people in poverty might be viewed, um, and it opens up the door of possibility for people to receive investment capital, hopefully to use it really wisely, and to grow and expand uh, small enterprises in the places where they live and work.
0: Well, that's really interesting, and I know in your approach with the microfinance institutional approach, um, you build partnerships with local banks. Maybe specifically talk about that. How do you start building trust with them? How do you develop that relationship, and how does it work logistically?
1: yeah in some ways uh we actually are the local bank uh so so uh you know we provide the services of, of saving services and, and lending uh for individuals in the communities um and so in that essence uh we we uh we do function as as a bank um we have biometric uh technology to make sure that we are keeping the savings accounts of the individuals that we serve safe and secure and to make sure that um Yeah, we are providing the access to capital, whether that's through savings or loans, so that uh, they can um, provide uh, for the families. So the savings groups, uh, oftentimes because of the geography, uh, we we look for the local banks uh, that we can partner with um, and uh, really trying to figure out what's the most effective way that we can do this work. Um, And if there's a local bank that is available and it can – Uh, Partner with them so that the savings groups, as they gather together, they will take out oftentimes a group account in there, and so that's one way that they partner with the local banks.
0: Hey, everybody. Rob here. I'm so glad you're listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. My encouragement is this. If you really like this podcast and you enjoy the different guests on our show, go to iTunes. Give us a rating. We know that when you give ratings to the show, it gets out to more people. We'd appreciate you doing that. and then if you also want to be inspired by other guests that we've had on the show, you can go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Um, we have a whole list of people now that we've had on the show. They're all very inspiring, uh, and they all do wonderful things throughout the world. So we encourage you to do do that. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. No, I love you getting into the details because we've had a lot of people on the show that um, do similar things. And, and I think the common Uh, goal, I guess, with all of the nonprofit leaders that are really approaching the issue of poverty is what's the most effective way? You know, how do we, how does this work in the best way long term? And so microfinances and, and um, lifting people up by giving them jobs. I mean, there's a lot of these things. I think our listeners really want to know the details, like, how does this work? I really want to do this right. So no, I appreciate you going into the detail. And that kind of gets into my next question. Why is your approach unique as a nonprofit? And what makes it effective in your opinion?
1: Yeah, and you know one thing that I uh, have been thinking about a lot recently is is why isn't there more collaboration among nonprofits? Why isn't uh partnership, uh generosity? Why isn't that the default position? And um oftentimes, you know it comes from this idea of 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 scarcity, well there's not enough resources to go around. So uh we've got to make sure that um we are we're figuring out what makes us we might say, uh, different or unique, but sometimes we're really trying to ask a question of, well, what makes us better? And increasingly, I, I'm just convinced that that sort of an approach. It, it doesn't actually uh, build... Uh, uh, great organizations and it doesn't build uh, greater impact. And, and so maybe uh, I think about this just a little bit differently that my first response when I hear the question is, I am so grateful for every organization that is involved in this space. We need so many more organizations that are figuring out how to most effectively help create jobs and mobilize capital and create ecosystems uh, so that uh, impact can expand. Um, and, you know, just part of that, we, we, uh, a few years ago made all of the tools, manuals, everything that we have, open source, um, and really want to figure out what does it look like uh, for us to, with more intentionality, maybe with a little more generosity, uh, be a great partner. So That's my first kind of gut response to that question. But a few other things that, that uh, we do focus on, uh, one is that we have a focus. Um, there are so many important and good areas of intervention. And uh, we've been focused on saying, let's do a small number of things and let's try to do them really well, and then that opens us up to partnership with other organizations. So as your uh, question earlier was, um, you know, what, what are the uh, primary approaches? They're not just our primary approaches, they are our, our only approaches. Um, and so we have these two tools of savings groups and microfinance institutions that we want to implement, want to partner with others that do other elements, and hopefully really develop an expertise which is built on the focus of a smaller number of direct interventions. So I think that's one piece. The second piece is that we um, have had a, uh, a board that has uh, tried to figure out how can we go to the challenging and underserved areas um, and to really make sure that we are figuring out what does it look like for us to serve in places where maybe there aren't a lot of other service providers. And then the third thing um, uh, in terms of our organizational identity is is told you about the founding story and, and a church and and, and um You know, we've always been about more than just the alleviation of financial poverty. Uh, Our faith matters to us, um, and so it's woven into everything that we do. So I'd say that's another important part of our identity. It's not just that we're focused on poverty alleviation, but really trying to figure out, and what does it look like for us to support the local church and to to stay on this full, holistic mission that includes addressing spiritual poverty as well. And so that's the third piece that uh, maybe might... um, Yeah, it is important to our identity as an organization.
0: Thanks for sharing that. And as you think about all the people that you've helped, and I know you have a lot of stories, but we just thought for today's podcast, give us a couple of stories of individuals, families you've served, and through so doing, have really changed their life for the better.
1: Yeah, well, I told you about the the group that started out by saving 10 cents a week. That's at the group level, uh, but maybe at the individual level, um, you know, there was uh, one individual's Anastasia uh and I uh, was on a trip uh, to Rwanda and this particular trip I remember it very clearly because it was with my son and we were having a great time he was learning more about this microfinance model and more about the work of Hope International and we were in this one rural community and while we were there there was uh, a woman who came in and it was obvious that she was blind uh she was elderly uh it was thought that she was at least eighty years old and and she had lost her husband um uh years earlier. And so I thought about imagine what life would be like an eighty year old, uh, blind Rwandan widow who had lived through a whole lot, but as she walked in, uh she had a presence and uh, she talked about how she had been able to save and how she'd been able to access uh, loans and how she had been able to build onto her house. She had gotten into real estate. Uh, she was able to uh, have the resources to, to have someone uh, farm her fields that she had. And so she was into real estate and agriculture. But the thing that really made it stand out, and, and the generosity that she had and her community was extraordinary, but the, re- the the quote that she had that really stood out, she said, I may be old. She said, I may be blind, but I will not beg. I will provide for my family. And there was such dignity. Uh, there was such joy in her face. And uh, just watching uh, her provide for her family uh, was just really, really incredible uh, to watch. So I think about her. And then I also think about Severa, another individual that has grown and expanded uh, small businesses, uh, started out, uh, by uh with with a loan of, of uh less than a hundred dollars to get into uh farming her fields and uh peanuts. She got into uh a retail store, uh she got into uh a hardware store and uh she's continued to grow. She has livestock, but the thing that strikes me about Severa uh is the fact that uh she has adopted eight orphans and built uh a well for her community and And provided health insurance for her employees and all of these things that are making such an impact on our community. And I think the reason that that stands out to me is because for too much of my life, I thought that we had to be the ones uh, to go in and provide all of these services. And I missed out on on the incredible way that there are people who are loving their local ne- neighbors. And by partnering with people like Severa, there's just so much more of a multiplication. So, you know, eight orphans that she has taken into her family out of uh, more financial capacity um to, to to support her community.
0: Well I know that what motivates most of us in the nonprofit sector is not so much our paycheck per se or or um you know other things that come along our way. It's typically the, the lives that are changed because of what we do. You know, the investment we make, and I love hearing these stories. I always ask people that are on my show, the guests, to, to share a story or two because I think that's what really inspires people when they listen to this is that the, these organizations truly are making a difference, a tangible difference in some really difficult circumstances like what you mentioned. So thanks for sharing those stories. And I really like the fact that hope is – Uh, part of your actual name. Um, It's part of your mission. Um, It's actually in our mission statement as well. And it's the operative word I could almost say in your organization. But how do you define hope? And why is offering hope so critical to the work that you do?
1: Yeah, you know, I could. I, I love the word hope, um, and it's not just because uh, it's in the name, but what it means and what it does, uh, and you can see it and you can feel it and you can experience it where there is uh, hope that is taking root uh, in the individuals and then on a broader sense uh, in communities. Um, And and it is, yeah, it is powerful. And I could give you kind of the social science behind that of the uh, power of hope and and the way that it is a leading indicator of of progress and and success. Uh, But uh, I I think that it really is, uh, at its core, this this determination um, and belief um, that it's possible for life to get better that it's possible for things to get better. And it is a powerful motivator. It is a powerful force. And uh, originally, I thought that uh, the impact of this work that we do was gonna be all about uh, the financial capital. And I still believe that. um, Financial capital is important for people to grow. But if you have financial capital without hope, uh, you would never take the risk of starting or expanding something. Uh, You would never step out. And so it is even more important than the financial capital is this idea of hope. Um yeah, so that, that to me is uh it, it's a beautiful word, it is a powerful word, and uh I think we need more of it uh in this world um uh, as well. Forbes um magazine said Uh, in essence, hopeful um, people tend to see challenges as temporary and as stepping stones to a better solution. I love that. Uh, The idea when you are filled with hope, uh, it it gives you the strength to address and overcome the challenges. You see them as temporary. You see them as obstacles uh, that you will be able to resolve. Um, And for people that are living in places of extreme poverty around the world, there are plenty of obstacles, um, and I think that's part of the reason why hope is such a crucial, um, yeah, not not just attitude, not just attribute, um, but, but it's an important characteristic of the most successful uh, entrepreneurs that we see around the world. And my guess is it's probably one of the most successful characteristics of uh, the individuals that we see uh, closer to home here in the U.S. as well.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. You know, hope is difficult to put on a chart or a graph. It's hard to quantify, but there is no mistake. It's real. You know the difference when it's in someone's life that you're trying to serve. And I do think, I honestly believe that it, uh, hope is the often the determining factor for those who really make it out of a really difficult challenge or an extreme poverty. And those who don't sometimes, it's its this intangible thing, but it's very, is very, very real. So I appreciate you having that vision and that passion for it. Well, I know my listeners are going to hear this podcast and probably want to find out a little bit more about you and your organization. How can they find out more about the incredible work of Hope International and how can they get involved?
1: Yeah, and really fun to be on the podcast. So thank you. And I've enjoyed uh, being a listener of your podcast as well. Uh, So really, really appreciate this. And um, yeah, for any of your listeners, uh, hopeinternational.org is the best way to find us. Uh, You can find uh, Instagram and Facebook and all the other social media channels there as well, if that's an easier way, but hopeinternational.org, all written out. Uh, one of the issues with the word hope is because it's such a powerful word, there are a lot of hopes out there. So Hope International, all written out, one word. And then for me personally, I'm at peterkgreer.com. It's where I blog and uh, where the books uh, that I write. Um, and then uh, also on social media, I'm the same thing, Peter K. Uh, Greer as well.
0: Well, my guest today has been Peter Greer. He's the president and CEO of Hope International, a global faith-based microenterprise development organization serving throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. Well, thank you again, Peter, for taking time out and calling in from Pennsylvania and keep up the good work. And thanks for being on the show today.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you.